want to begin by saying good morning to everyone and to express to you how eager I am to be able to share with you some thoughts that I have been studying over the past couple weeks. This morning I want us to consider a very monumental question, and that is the question of, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ really reliable? I mean, when we open up the Gospels and we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and we read about the death, and we read about the burial, and we read about the resurrection of Jesus, is that something that actually, is that something that factually, is that something that historically really occurred? Paul, writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 14, said this, And if Christ be not risen, then our preaching's vain, and your faith is also vain. Here, Paul, writing to a group of Christians in the first century at Corinth, who had developed this misconception, whether it was through their Greco-Roman influence or whether it was through false teachers infiltrating the congregation, they began to believe this misconception that there was no resurrection of the dead. And so when Paul's writing this here, he's addressing that issue of them disbelieving in the resurrection of the dead. And he presents to them this argument. He says, if you say there's no resurrection of the dead, then you can surely count on that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, everything that you believe under the umbrella of Christianity is completely pointless. And that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? I mean, if Jesus Christ came to the earth and he made the proclamation that he was the Son of God, that he was the way, the truth, the life, and that no man could come to God but through him, that he had the words of eternal life, and that he would fulfill all of these things and he would accomplish all of these things through his death, through his burial, and through his resurrection. If he didn't rise from the grave, then everything that he said was completely false and Christianity would be the biggest fraud ever perpetrated on the face of the earth. That makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, why do you forgive people as a Christian who sin against you? Why do you do that? Because as Christians, we believe in the authority of Jesus Christ. We believe that he did come, that he did die, that he was resurrected. And because of that, he has authority in our life to give commandments, right? We want to forgive other people who sin against us because we want God to forgive us of our sin. And that makes a lot of sense. We put a lot of, of faith in that and trust in that. But if Jesus Christ didn't rise from the grave, what difference does it make the, the way I treat my enemies? It doesn't. Why don't I just raise a sword of vengeance on myself? Because we put faith and trust in the resurrection. C.S. Lewis said it best when he said this. If Christianity is false, it's of zero importance. However, if it's true, there's nothing more important in the entire universe. You see, the foundational premise on which we establish the authority of Jesus Christ is if he did, in fact, rise from the grave. And I think that we all understand the significance or we have a general understanding of what the resurrection means. But how do we know that it happened? I mean, you and I didn't witness the crucifixion of Jesus. I mean, we didn't even live in the first century. We didn't even live in the second century. So how do we know that the resurrection actually happened? I mean, you and I have a faith that's premised on a bunch of ancient texts that were compiled into a book that were written by authors who you and I had no personal relationship with, and we believe it is true. Why? 
Why do we believe that the resurrection is true? Why do we believe that the gospel is true? And what I want us to do this morning is I want us to examine the resurrection of Jesus and hopefully we can look at the evidence and we can meet a burden of proof to show that the resurrection of Jesus actually did occur and that Jesus Christ does have authority because he was resurrected. Now clearly we can cite this, the, the gospels all day long for the existence of Jesus on the earth and his death and through his crucifixion and his resurrection. But what I want us to do to begin this exploration is to look at just a couple of historical texts that establishes the legitimacy and the, and the, and the, and the, the fact that Jesus did uh, walk the face of the earth. Tassius, who was a uh, Roman historian, wrote this. He said, consequently, to get rid of the report, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class of hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, or Christ, from where the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. And the most mischievous superstition, here referring to the resurrection, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. And so here we have a historian, a Roman historian, who is talking specifically about the existence and the identity of Jesus and how that after the resurrection of Jesus, there was this mass movement, a.k.a. the church, that was developing in Rome and throughout Judea. Something had significant had occurred, and here we see the movement of Christianity recorded in a historical report. Now, we see these names in here such as Nero and Tiberius. Well, who were these individuals? Well, if you're familiar with literature in, in high school, I studied about Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar was a Roman conqueror who was a part of the Roman government who was at the time when Rome was a republic. But we know the story of Julius Caesar. How there, there was a coup developed against him and he was assassinated. And then there was some uprising in the government in Rome and Rome eventually transitioned out of a republic into an empire. Well, when they became an empire, there was an emperor that had to be appointed who was going to be basically the president of the Roman government. And who was that? It was a man by the name of Augustus Caesar. Well, after Augustus Caesar had died, another Caesar came up and took his place, and it was Tiberius Caesar. Tiberius Caesar is the, the, the person that we read about in this historical report. Tiberius Caesar was the Caesar who was alive at the time of about Jesus' teenage years all the way up and through his crucifixion. And so after Tiberius Caesar, we see the Caesar of Caligula, we see Claudius Caesar, and then we find Nero, who was the, the Caesar who preceded him. And Nero was a very evil Caesar. In fact, he had burned 75% of Rome, and then he placed that accusation on the Christians. And so there was this mass movement, which was really interesting, because here you're in Rome, where the church is being vehemently persecuted, where Christians were being lit on fire in the streets, and this is a movement that's really growing and populating and going viral, but yet we're in a government situation in which Christians are actually being tormented for their faith. And we see this name here, Pontius Pilate. Here again, we see the Rome historian mentioned Pilate, who's mentioned in the Gospels, who was the Roman procurator, if you will, a governor of Judea, who had sentenced the death of Jesus. And the reason why this historian is saying this is breaking out is because of this mischievous 
superstition. You see, word of the resurrection was spreading then, and it was getting out, and people were having eyewitness, eyewitness accounts of the resurrected Jesus, and this was becoming a populist movement by which it was growing. And so here, if you don't want to take the Gospels as historical ancient documents that are authenticated themselves, then go look at the Roman historian Tacitus to see that Jesus was a person, that this was actually going on in history. But let's not stop there. This uh, individual is a, a, a Jewish historian by the name of Josephus. And Josephus lived from 37 A.D. to 100 A.D., which is really interesting because we're talking about close in time proximity because the death of Jesus was somewhere around 30 to 33 A.D. And so here we have a gentleman who is living very, very closely to the time of Jesus. He says this, And at this time there was a wise man who was called Jesus, and his conduct was good and he was known to be virtuous. And many people from among the Jews and other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. And those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion and that he was alive. And accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah concerning whom the prophets have recounted wonders. Now, this is a Jewish historian. Josephus, he later uh, began to get Roman citizenship. He became a Roman citizen, and he was eventually a court reporter for the Emperor Vespasian. But he was also a historian, and he wrote and he recorded this down. And what I'm trying to get from all of this is that Christianity was not some legend that took centuries and centuries to develop over the resurrection. These are historians who lived in close proximity to Jesus, who were witnessing the transition of society of this mass movement of Christianity that was occurring under situations and under persecution, and it was being recorded. And we could sit here day in and day out and go after numerous of texts, but I want us to, to move on from that, but I do want us to gain the insight from what we see from other sources outside of the scriptures. Now, of course, there are skeptics, right? There are skeptics in academia. There are, there are atheists. There are agnostic people who say, yeah, I don't know if I really believe in the resurrection of Jesus. And they'll tell you that even the scriptures themselves have verses that point to the fact that even some of the disciples themselves were skeptic about the resurrection of Jesus. And they get that from Matthew chapter 28, verse 17. It says in Matthew chapter 28, verse 17, and when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Now, this is three days post the crucifixion. This is three days after the death of Jesus. Jesus appears to the disciples, minus Judas of Iscariot, and he makes this presentation to them, the supernatural event. But it says that when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some of them doubted. And what scholars will do, or atheists will do, is they'll say, well, that word doubted there means that they were just sitting back with their arms crossed and their lips perched, looking down their glasses and going, yeah, I don't believe that this is true. But what is interesting about this is when we look at this word doubted, it comes from the Greek word dystadzo. And the, the, the Greek meaning for this word is it means to waver or to hesitate or to think two different things. And so this word is not used in the context of as if disciples had a literal disbelief in the resurrection. But what it means is more like a hesitation out of an amazement. This word is only used one other time in the New Testament. It's found in Matthew chapter 14 and verse 13. 
when Jesus saw Peter and Peter began to pursue him on the water. It says that Jesus, that Peter went after Jesus, and as he was walking on the sea and those waves were licking his feet, he began to panic and he began to sink. And what did Jesus say to him? He said, Jesus stretched forth his hand and says, why do you doubt? Or why do you dispadzo? Right? So in that situation, we have Peter who's experiencing a supernatural event. He has enough faith to be out there on the water himself, but as he's walking on the water, he's thinking two things. He's seeing Jesus, he's experiencing the supernatural event, but yet he's looking at the water saying, how can this be? When we consider the parallel account of this um, post-resurrection appearance from Jesus to his disciples, we can find it in Luke chapter 24 and verses 41. It says, and while they yet believed not for joy, and wondered. And so this is the same account. And so scholars will say, see, look, it says that they didn't believe. They believed not. But Luke uses a different Greek word. You uses this word, apistios. And it means like a figurative unbelief. And so when we put it in the context of the sentence that was written in the verse there, it says, and while they yet believed not, out of joy and out of amazement. So to, to kind of to break that down, it would be like if I said that Ryan hit a grand slam in the bottom of the ninth inning in the seventh game of the World Series. That's unbelievable, right? That's jaw on the floor, pinch me, is this really happening, right? Unbelievable. So the word there in the Greek, when you break it down, it's not that the disciples had a literal uh, belief that they were not experiencing a resurrected Jesus, but it was terminologies that the writers used to describe their sheer amazement and hesitation for what they were seeing. Well, some say, well, what about Thomas, doubting Thomas? Well, what's interesting about Thomas was, is he wasn't there on that occasion when Jesus appeared before them. Remember, they had told Thomas, we've seen Jesus, and he says, I'm not going to believe it unless I see it myself, and I put my hands in his scars, and, and so forth. And we know that Jesus later reappeared to Thomas, another witness, and confirmed his identity, and confirmed his resurrection, and Thomas said, my Lord and my God. Now, there's really three main theories that are used to try to disprove the resurrection of, of Jesus. And the first one is what we call the swoon theory or the resuscitation theory. And the theory is this, that Jesus did not really die, that he was only swooned. Therefore, the disciples saw only a revived or a resuscitated Christ. Christ was nailed to the cross and suffered from shock, pain, loss of blood, but instead of actually dying, he only fainted or swooned from exhaustion. He was placed in the tomb, and he's still alive, and the disciples, mistaking him for dead, buried him alive. After several hours, he revived in the coolness of the tomb and arose and departed. Now, you may say, well, that seems kind of far-stretched, and you're right. I think it seems kind of far-stretched, but actually, this is the teachings of the Quran. The Quran teaches that Jesus, they, it teaches the swoon theory. The problem about the swoon theory is, is that the Quran was written nearly six centuries after all of this occurred. But nonetheless, let's examine the evidence to hold it up to see if it is a valid theory. Well, if we consider scriptural evidence first, if we were to just look at the scriptures and consider them inspired, in Mark chapter 15 and verse 43 through 45, it says, Joseph of Arithemia, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, 
went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate marveled, and he was already dead. And summoning the centurion, or the Roman soldier, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he had found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Now, Joseph of Arithemia was a part of the Sanhedrin council. We believe that he was one of the people who had consented to the death of Jesus. And it's interesting that after the resurrection, we have a member of the Sanhedrin now kind of waking up to the, the realization of what's going on here and wants to go retrieve the body of Jesus. Now, it says that he gathered up the courage because he was fixing to go before the Roman governor to ask for the body of this highly controversial man. But look at what it says. It says that, that uh, Pontius Pilate ordered the centurion or the Roman soldier to, to confirm his death. Now, I can tell you that I have done research and research and research, and I have not found one single text that ever confirms that anybody survived a full Roman crucifixion. In fact, crucifixion, the crucifixion of, of, of people didn't happen in Rome. It happened all the way back in the Persian Empire. And it was adopted by the Greeks, but it was perfected by the Romans. And if you were a Roman soldier and you were tasked with killing someone through execution, you better make sure that you killed them. Because what would happen is, is if you didn't kill the prisoner, you yourself as a Roman soldier would be executed. And so it was very important that when they were going to execute a prisoner, that they would carry out the task. And I can assure you that, that the Romans were professional killers. And so this idea that Jesus somehow survived a flogging, survived a beating, was crucified to the cross, and then somehow in the coolness of the tomb, he's able to resuscitate himself, move a two-ton stone away from this tomb, and then fight off a regiment of Roman soldiers who were armed is completely crazy. It doesn't meet the way of the evidence. In fact, there's a gentleman who's an atheist New Testament scholar by the name of Gerd Ludman, and he says this, Historically, it's indisputable that Jesus was dead. If you sit down with New Testament scholars, whether they're atheists or whether they're, they're Christians or whatever, there's not a dispute among, in our American culture and academia, those who don't follow the Quran, that Jesus was actually killed. In fact, we just read two historical uh, documents from Josephus and from Tassius that confirmed the death of Jesus in history. But let's go a little bit further. The American... Uh, Medical Association published this article that investigated the death of Jesus. In fact, if he was actually killed. And I pulled an excerpt from that journal that says this. Clearly the weight of the evidence indicates that Jesus was dead even before the wound to his side was inflicted. And so uh, I'm not going to read that, but you can, you can read the, the journal itself. And what they ultimately said was this. He died really of two things massive blood loss from the trauma to that, and he died of asphyxiation, right? And so it's not that they just nailed him to the cross. He went through a Roman flogging. And a Roman flogging wasn't just, I'm going to whip you with a whip. It was, it, I'm going to take a whip, and I'm going to put shards of bones on the end of it, and I'm going to rip the flesh off your back to where you're completely degloved on your back, and then you're going to carry a cross. That's why Jesus couldn't carry the cross through the streets is because of the trauma to his back and he was falling in the city. And then you're going to go through that, which would have put him in critical condition himself. And then you're going to spike him to a cross. You're going to place a crown of thorns on him. You're going to beat him savagely. And then you're going to spike him with a spear. And then we're wondering of whether he can live. 
If you made it through the Roman flogging and you were lucky enough to be spiked to a cross, you would die of asphyxiation. And the reason why is because when you were spiked to a cross, your arms were locked in a cross in the inhale position, the stress that it would put on your chest. So to be able to take a breath on the cross, you would have to screech your back up the cross to lift your head up to be able to exhale. And what medical science, and the reason they confirmed his death, is because when people die of asphyxiation, they go through what's called precardial effusion. It's where fluid builds up in your heart and it builds up in your lungs. And when they went through and they looked at the evidence and they looked at the Gospels, they said that the fact in John chapter 19, verse 33 through 34, where it says, but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced him with a side, and there came out blood and water. So that the fact that we have a count of water that after he was pierced through his ribcage came out shows that he was already dead before he was taken off the cross through asphyxiation. Now, the second theory I want us to look at is what we call the hallucination theory. And Gerd Ludman, who we cited earlier, actually takes this approach. He's the New Testament scholar who's an atheist who doesn't himself believe in the swoon theory, but he does take this approach as the hallucination theory. And the theory is this. This theory says that all Christ's post-resurrection appearances were only supposed appearances because the people had hallucinations and in this way, all the post-resurrection appearances can be dismissed. And so really what the argument is, is you have these disciples, they've traveled with Jesus, they've been in his presence, they've developed an affinity, they've developed a relationship with him, and then they've witnessed this massive trauma of him being crucified, and now they're having these hallucinations. There were many people who reported to see Jesus after he died. The Apostle Paul, there were other people in Scripture, the apostles that saw Jesus. But when we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 5 through 7, it says, And when they had seen Caiaphas, Caiaphas was the leading Jewish leader at that time who had consented to the death of Jesus, who had persuaded the Roman government to kill him, said, Then the twelve, after that, they had seen about 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater remained, the part remained unto the present, but some were fallen asleep, after that, he was seen of James, who, who was a skeptic of his for some time, and then of all the apostles. And so here we're talking about a hallucination theory. What's interesting about hallucinations are they're in the subjective mind. They're in individuals. And 1 Corinthians was written about 20 to 25 years after the death of Jesus. So again, in historical time, very close proximity. It says that 500 people on one occasion, at one sitting, at one time, saw Jesus, okay? This individual who is a uh, clinical psychologist wrote kind of a, a, a fancy opinion, but I think it kind of is a very simple concept. He said this, he said, I have surveyed the professional literature, peer-reviewed journal articles and books, written by psychologists, psychiatrists, and other relevant healthcare professionals during the past two decades and have yet to find a single documented case of a group hallucination. That is, an event for which more than one person purportedly shared in a visual or other sensory perception that there was clearly no external reference. And so what he's trying to say is, yeah, hallucinations happen. 
They happen in people who suffer from mental disorders. They happen to people who suffer from severe paranoia. They happen in people who suffer from severe schizophrenia. But for 500 people on one occasion to make the proclamation, to sign a decree, or actually a creed actually, which tested to the fact, a sworn document, that they have seen Jesus is completely impossible. It's outside the realms of, of, uh, of our, our, our natural world that we understand. Okay, That would be completely impossible. There are many people, like I said, who witnessed Jesus after his resurrection. One of those was the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is interesting because the Apostle Paul was one of the most radical people in the Jewish faith at his time. He would be the type of people that we would turn on the news and we would see all these radical people. He was even far radical than that in his Jewish faith, even to the point where he was going and getting permission from the Jewish leaders to be able to go and to execute Christians and to haul them off and to persecute them. And so here we have an individual who has spent his entire life persecuting the church, his entire mission, his entire reputation. All he knows is to destroy those things that challenge and jeopardize the faith that he believes in. But yet in Acts chapter 9, it says that Jesus appeared to him. And after that supernatural event, we know of the conversion of Paul to the point where Paul would later go on to be beheaded. I believe it was in 67 AD. And all of these apostles did. Okay, To the point where we're saying that people who lived in a culture, who lived in a society where you would be lit on fire in the street for proclaiming the name of Jesus, continued to do it. It's because they had a sincere belief and a sincere conviction of what they saw and what they believed. I mean, it's real easy. Jesus dies. He doesn't resurrect from the grave. Go about your life being a fisherman. Go about your life being a Jew. And you live harmonious in society. But they wouldn't do it, which to me is a, a testament of more of their faith and the belief in what they had, in, in the belief that they had in Jesus. We have nine ancient sources inside and outside of the New Testament that confirm, the, uh, that confirm eyewitness accounts of Jesus. And what's probably the most interesting is we have actual creeds that were preserved. In fact, if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and you read in verse 3, scholars there agree that Paul is referencing those creeds in his earlier letter to the Corinthians. So what happened is, is after the resurrection of Christ, literally months after that resurrection, people were seeing his appearances and they would go and they would sign their name to this creed because they didn't have a Bible, they didn't have a New, they didn't have a new Testament when the disciples sat down. This word was shared orally, and it wasn't about 40 years after the death of Jesus that these people began to pin down these accounts so that you and I, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, could have these things and that we could learn about Jesus and that God's word would be passed down through, uh, through the New Testament and through the Old Testament. And so that is interesting as well. Another theory that's out there is the theft theory, and that is this, that the disciples stole the body and claimed that he rose from the dead. Now, this is a more popular theory in the Jewish community. And I want us to look at Matthew chapter 28, verses 12 through 15. It says, And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money to the soldiers, saying, Say ye, his disciples, came by night, stole him away while we slept. And if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money and did as they were taught, and this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. 
And so even going back at the execution and the burial of Jesus, when they realized that he was not there, they had to come up with a story. And notice this. Remember when I talked about earlier about if you were a Roman soldier and you let a prisoner go or you didn't execute somebody or you didn't maintain watch at your post, that you yourself would be executed? Notice what the Jews are telling the Roman soldiers there. He says, you, here, we're going to give you some money. If, if Pilate asked about this, he was stolen. Okay? And we'll, we'll persuade him. We'll secure you because they knew they had a death wish because they couldn't find the body. And so they were told to fabricate a lie. Now, what I want us to think about here is to examine motive. What would be the motive? The Jews didn't have a motive to steal the body of Jesus. They wanted him dead. They wanted him gone. They wanted the ruckus that he was creating in Jerusalem out of Jerusalem. So they didn't have a, a motive to take his corpse. What about the Romans? The Romans wanted the same thing as the Jews. They wanted him dead and they wanted him gone because it was causing an uprise in the Jewish community of which they were to keep charge and watch over. And so they wanted him dead and gone because they were tired of this constant problem with Jesus of Nazareth. So the Romans didn't have a motive to take the body of Jesus. What about the disciples? What are the disciples going to do with the body of Jesus? They didn't have the means, nor did they have the motive to take his body. You're going to have these 12 fishermen go overthrow a regiment of Roman soldiers who are standing before a two-ton stone before the tomb. Didn't happen. In fact, they were all scattered abroad, lost and confused after the death of Jesus because they got out of town after it happened. And so again, I find that, that the theory is, is pretty weak. So when we consider the, the resurrection and the uh, validity of the resurrection I think it can really be summarized in, in what I'll call the four E's, and that is execution, that there was an actual death of Jesus. And I think that the evidence tends to point that Jesus was actually killed. We also have early reports, early reports such as the creed, such as the, the documents that we find in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul's conversion. The Apostle Paul was converted on the road to Damascus roughly one to three years after the crucifixion of Jesus. And so in the ancient world, that's historic gold because we think of that and we go, but you consider Homer's, uh, you consider Homer's Odyssey or the Iliad, that was written 800 years before Christ. And there's only eight remaining copies left, I think, in the, in the known world that developed that, which was the Greek's Bible for centuries and centuries. That took centuries to develop. But the New Testament, if you took action, the New Testament, was through contextual criticism they developed the authenticity of the New Testament. They took all the surviving texts that they found. If you stack all of those texts up, it'd be a mile high. It's the only document in the ancient world that has that much credibility and that much contextual criticism. And we, I could have gone more into that, and the, the, the authenticity of the manuscripts, but I chose to stick more on these theories, and we could study that at some other time. The third point is the empty tomb, that the tomb was, in fact, empty, that Joseph of Arithemia came and took the body, who was a Jew, the tomb would have been known by people who were both Jewish and Christians, and that he placed the body himself in the tomb. And then fourthly, eyewitnesses, not only the apostle Paul, not only the apostles who recorded these things, not only the early Christians who had signed their names to creeds. And so I think the eyewitnesses uh, refused to cower under the persecution of the Romans. Uh, another gentleman who was, a, um, who was a historian, who was a second century satirist, wrote this about Christianity. He said, the Christians, you know, worship a man to this day, 
the distinguished personage who introduced their novel rights and who was crucified on that account. You see, these misguided creatures start with the general conviction that they are immortal for all time, which explains the contempt of death and voluntary self-devotion, dev devotion which are so common among them, and then is impressed on them by their original lawgiver that they were all brothers from the moment they were converted, and they deny the gods of Greece and worship the crucified sage and live after his laws. All this they take quite, all, all this they take quite on faith, with the result that they despise all worldly goods alike, regarding them merely as common property. And so here we have another ancient writer who's reporting on this massive uh, movement of the church that's taking place in the first and the second century. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 3, it says, He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now, the book of Acts was written roughly around 60 A.D. Again, the death of Jesus was around 33 or 30 A.D., so remarkably close that we're seeing this being uh, penned and recorded for us. So what all does this mean? I mean, if we're convinced that Jesus rose from the grave and we believe it to be true, what does that mean for you and I? And I think it really goes back to what we cited earlier with C.S. Lewis when he said, if Christianity is false, it's of zero importance. But if it's true, there's nothing more important in the entire universe. And I think that Paul understood that. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10, he says, That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, and that by any means possible I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. You see, the resurrection moved Paul. It transformed Paul from being a murderous person into being a follower of Jesus Christ. I've heard sermons before. It says you can either identify Jesus as three things. He was either the Lord, a lunatic, or a liar. If he is what he says he was and he did rise from the grave, you can only submit to him as Lord because nobody in the ancient world ever professed that they were going to die and be resurrected on the third day and ever did it. And so by doing that, he confirmed his identity and power as the Son of God. And you and I as Christians can take confidence. We can take faith in that. It can shape. It can mold our faith and make us become a new creature in Christ. We turn on the news. We see an insurrection. We see a protest. We see whatever things. We can take peace in the fact that Jesus did rise from the grave. And because of that, we can be secured in our faith. Um, I appreciate uh, your time this morning. I enjoyed doing this study. I hope that the thoughts were in accordance with God's word, and I hope that they were beneficial and enlightening to you. At this time, we're going to have a, a song that's been selected.